Father, in your name, you're there in our midst. And Father, we wouldn't want it any other way. We want you to fill every chair in this building, Father, to fill every heart and mind and head today that, Lord, we'll know when we leave here today that we had a personal encounter with the Mighty One, the Holy One, and that, Father, we will be able to give you glory and praise and honor. We ask, O oh God, that you would be with us today in this session especially, Father, and then on in You'll just guide us and guard us and, and uh, that your Holy Spirit will have his way in our service. And we'll give you the thanks and praise. And everybody said in Jesus' name, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, I haven't been excited at all about this little event. I know you guys haven't heard anything about this. And, um, this is Jet and Linda Taylor. And as young as he looks, we have known each other for 40 years, and I, we are about the same age. I'm a, a year or two older. It's hard to tell by looking at us. But um, Jet and Linda were part of our life. Uh, Jet probably more than Linda. Linda um, didn't have to be in the locker room with all of us, so that left her out of quite a bit of experience in college, I'm sure. But um, they're going to share their life. I'm just going to let them have it once I get done with an extensive interview here and uh, let them just take off and take us where they want to go with us. But um, Jet and Linda, just uh, real quick, um, where'd you go to school at? High school. I went to school in Mountain Home. Uh, my dad was uh, Air Force. He retired to Mountain Home Air Force Base. And so over the objections of all of us, brothers and sisters, he decided to stay there. <laughs> and, and I certainly did not understand at the time why he did that. And so that's part of me learning about my dad as a man. And that was where he grew up, which was in New Jersey. It was very rough. And in the inner city, there had always been drugs, crime, and uh, it, it took his family. And he watched it. And he told me that unless he left there, he knew that he'd be dead by 21. Wow. And he didn't want to take his family back there. So when he stayed, he stayed to give us a chance. That's why he stayed. Wow. Well, Linda, how about you? Where did you go to school? I went to Mountain Home High School. <laughs> My father also was Air Force. And so Jet and I went to high school together, had lockers next to each other. Um, and we were um, really good friends. Um, through high school and then went to um, University of Idaho because when you're in Idaho, you kind of, back then, you went to Boise State or University of Idaho. And so um, that's where we ended up both going. There's so many questions I want to ask them, and I think they're going to cover some of this. Yes, are you going to cover a little? Tell us about your children real quick. You were here. They are here because their youngest son, Yes, Joshua had a wedding and met a girl back in Kansas, and she was from Caldwell. Well, we have four children. We had two. We thought we were done. And like eight, ten years later, we had two more. Anna is our youngest, and she is a junior in college at Virginia Tech in Virginia, which is where we live right now. Um, our oldest son, Caleb, went to the Air Force Academy, is married, um, has three children, Elijah, Elijah Jett, Ezekiel Jett, and um, Eden. 
and they live in Arizona, and he's a, <clears throat> a pilot in the Air Force. Um, our other daughter uh, is married and has two children, uh, Gabriella Grace and Gideon. And they live in Virginia where we live. Her husband did not make this trip because the baby's only three months old and um, felt like the trip and all the activity would be too much. Then Joshua, who just got married. Joshua went to school in Central Christian College in Kansas, met a sweet girl named Sarah. When we met her mom about three years ago, her mom said, when Sarah went to college, I prayed and said, God, please don't let her fall in love with a boy that lives on the other side of the United States. <laughs> please don't let that happen. And she said the first year of school, she kept hearing this about this boy named Josh, Joshua. And she said, and then she found out he was from Virginia. And she said, I told God, no, no, no. I had a talk about, with, about this with you. And um, then she met us and found out that we were originally from Idaho. Our family is from Idaho. And she said, ah, gotcha, God. <laughs> so it is all good. And we are so thankful to be back here. It feels it is home to us. Idaho is home. And so it's wonderful to be here. Awesome. Um, got back from the wedding last night about 12 o'clock. So they've had quite a whirlwind trip while they were here. And um, so I'm just going to, without further ado, are you going to tell a little bit about your life and that type of thing? Absolutely. And, all right. I, I so have, I'm going to get out of the way and let you do that. I have brother. more to cover than you have time for. All right. You but, go for it. And I'm going to stretch this to 10 tail because we didn't get in the sanctuary early enough to, we went all 45 minutes. So give, give me that subtle sign that says I'm done. Like Susie's this. good at that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Linda. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Okay, so some. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's hear a hand for Jen Linda. No. Hey! <clears throat> First of all, I, I tend to be mobile when I chat, and uh, so you'll see me walking around. But I have to give you some background on the demographics. I'm one of seven children. I have uh, two brothers older, two brothers younger, one sister older, one sister younger. And so when we transitioned from the Air Force Base into Mountain Home, we were the first black family in Mountain Home. So were there issues? Is the sky blue? Yes, of course there were. Okay. But that's part of the demographics, though. That's part of what God was doing. And uh, that was where I began to understand our role because there was a man when I was in fifth grade. Um, I will tell you that as a young kid, I got in many, many fights. All of my brothers did, and it was over that misunderstanding. Growing up in Idaho, there was, I don't say malicious ignorance, but there was some. There was. And so my, my fifth, year, fifth grade year, I probably got in over a dozen fights. But what was weird about that, I was elected as class president. <laughs> I, you know, dichotomy there. And then in my, my, my sixth grade year, uh, that was a transition time because that's, that's where I learned hate, okay? That's where I learned hate. So over that summer, my brother and I were playing in a field, and these kids were yelling names at us. Black this, nigger, all this kind of stuff. And then they began to shoot at us with arrows, legitimate arrows. And one landed between my brother and I, and I thought it was just a toy. It wasn't a toy. And I looked at it, and just an intense hate came over me. And so 
We tried to pursue these guys. They had what they call wrist rockets, so they're shooting stones and things at us, calling us names. And this is so interesting because I asked the Lord to please deliver those guys into my hands. Please. Sixth grade year starts. Now, this was during the summer, my fifth and sixth grade year. I'm a sixth grader. First day, I'm going out to recess, and I hear some kids yelling, the niggers are here, the niggers are coming. Look out, the niggers, and he's pointing at me. And I turn around, and it's those kids. And they were standing on this elevated platform. And so I went up on the elevated platform and just started wailing on them. I mean, they... And what's unfortunate is um, my father, because I had brothers, thought toys for us were boxing gloves, okay? So as a boy, what do you do with boxing gloves? You use them. Now, having two older brothers, I was definitely a recipient of many blows, but I learned quick. And so what we learned was how to use our hands. And why that's important is because as these kids wanted to wrestle, I was not interested in wrestling. I was using my hands. And so as I was hitting them, um, uh, my intent was to kill them. That was my intent. And so I was in a position to do that. And there was a guy standing next to me that later became a very good friend and appealed to me, just said, don't kill them, because I was grabbing their head and hitting them on the sidewalk. I'm in sixth grade, okay? So why I say that is simply this, the, the effect had already begun and I had to decide who I was going to be. My mom made this appeal to us because through the seventh and eighth grade, I got in a fight, my brothers got in a fight, we got in lots of fights. And I remember she told me, she said, you know what, you have to remember something. These kids don't hate you. What they're doing is echoing what their parents are saying. And they said, if you can convince them that you're not what their parents think, they'll defend you. I'm thinking, Mom, come on, just line them up, and we'll take them out one at a time. So <clears throat> here I am in eighth grade now. And for those of you that went to public education, there's a certain point in time in your junior high years that you have communal showers, which is a shock unto itself. Okay, so I'm in a, taking a shower, and this, man, this young boy comes to me. You know, he's one of my, I think he was in eighth grade, ninth grade. And he looks at me, and he said, where's your tail? And I said, excuse me? He said, where's your tail? He said, my dad says you're monkeys, and where's your tail? And everyone in the locker room just moved to this, because they knew where this was going. So they all moved out of the way. And I remembered what my mom had told me the day before. And I said, okay, I'm gonna try this. Okay, um, what does your eyes tell you? What, what does your eyes say? I don't have a tail. I'm just like you, I'm a young man, don't have a tail. He said, well, my dad says you do. And I said, but what do your eyes tell you? I don't. I said, I'm very much like you, but I just have different color skin. And the shock on his face was more disbelief that his father had lied to him. And I began to see what my mom had talked about. That, and I went, okay. And you know, I definitely wanted to drop this kid, but I noticed what my mom was saying must be true. So that was the beginning of pursuing a different venue, okay? Oh, by the way, I had also been elected president of that class that year too. So it wasn't everyone, okay? It wasn't everyone, but it was some, and that's the point. So 
What does that mean? So I was very much involved in athletics, uh, football, wrestling, track, uh, basketball. Yes, basketball. So, <laughs> so when, I was, when I was a freshman, I was a four-sport letterman in basketball, track, wrestling, and football. Okay? So when I got to Saint, uh, in high school, I really pursued wrestling, and I was pretty good at it. Uh, so good that I was recruited to wrestle. And I was recruited by Boise State, Oregon, Utah. But I also recognized that when I wrestled, my grades would dip because I was always starving myself. And any wrestler knows, they, they know that, okay? You were starving yourself. And I just knew that if I was gonna try to be successful in life, I didn't want to go through my, my formative learning years starving. So I decided, you know what, I'm not gonna take this scholarship. But my parents didn't know much about education. So I went to the University of Idaho, uh, and my brother was already there playing football. And there was a big change in the NCAA. Before, when you got a scholarship, you got a four-year scholarship. This was the first time they decided to make it so you had to earn it every year. So every year they had single scholarships. So he said, come on out, and I'll bet you that you can earn one, because these guys aren't that good. Because sometimes you, you start getting that feeling of entitlement. Hey, I've been here. You know, I've kind of earned my slot, you know. So I came out, and uh, my first practice, um, I'm, a, I'm a defensive back and a wide receiver. My very first practice, my brother, you know, he says, okay, go out, and so I'm coming out. I'm against the first team. They're running a play, and this tight end pulls. His name is Will Overgaard, and, and he's a second team All-American, okay? So I'm all of what, 130 pounds at that time, and he's roughly 235. You can see the comparison, which is not good in my favor. And I'm standing there as he's pulling, and he's getting ready to hit me, and I'm just kind of going, oh. And boom, he makes contact, and I'm kind of closing my eyes, and I'm getting hit, 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 I'm hitting. And I realize I'm not hitting, I'm bouncing on the ground. <laughs> and it was the ground each, each turn. And then I kind of come to a stop, and I feel this pair of hands, and I think, oh, someone's going to help me. No, that was my brother. He grabbed me by the shoulder pads and put helmet to helmet and said, don't you ever embarrass me like that again. I told people you could play football. You're a tailor. You play football. And that was what I needed. Because after that, it was game on. And again, the rules were very different back then. I ended up probably gaining about, about 40 pounds and I would hurt a lot of people, but I earned a scholarship. And the point there is that in that time, just look very quickly, in that time, I was able to, I went to the University of Idaho to become a pilot in the Air Force. They had ROTC. They had aeronautical engineering. They had dropped aeronautical engineering my very first semester. And I thought, okay, okay. But I had earned a scholarship. And then at the end of that year, they dropped ROTC. I said, well, what's that? What's that going to mean? So my challenge was, what do I do? I, I didn't have any mentors at the time. Um, I was getting involved in a lot of nonsense because the football team tends to be the, the alpha dogs of most campuses. And uh, dogs is a good word, but alpha dogs are good campuses. And so that was where I was getting my affirmation was from those guys. And from us, it was always an adversarial role between the football players or the athletes and the non-athletes. You know, we had choice names for them. Pencil neck geeks, okay? That, that was our name for anyone that wasn't an athlete. 
And it, it, unfortunately, I thought that's who I was, okay? So when I met Ralph, Ralph's locker was next to mine when I was in, in, uh, in the locker room. Now, I was also pretty profane, uh, expletives all the time. Um, I virtually respected nobody if they weren't an athlete. So Ralph was a very nice guy, but he was a kicker on the team. And there's one thing that I recognized about Ralph was that he seemed to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that I'd never seen before. And as he would describe Jesus Christ, he would describe him like he's alive, like he has this ongoing relationship. And I'm going, hmm. In my mind, God was like the sun. You know, sometimes you feel him, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you see him, cloudy, whatever. But not ongoing. So as I continued my scholastic career, I made a series of bad decisions, bad decisions. So where did that end me? I ended up, I was in the military guard, the guard unit in Moscow, Idaho, because I was told if I did that, I'd be able to fly a helicopter. I was told that by an army officer in ROTC. While I went to basic training, he had a permanent change of station, short notice. He said he would go ahead and submit a scholarship for me the application and did none of that. So I came back and I said, uh, Jet Taylor, and I said, yeah, and I said, I'm looking for the scholarship. Captain such and such told me he would do that. He said, no, you don't have anything here. I said, wait a minute. He said if I, if I went into the guard, he would allow me to be an officer and eventually get a slot, pilot slot flying helicopters. He said, no, we have none of that. I was absolutely furious because now I had a six-year commitment with the guard unit in Moscow, Idaho. I'm going, what the heck is that? And my major, I had changed my major from, from aeronautical engineering. Now, for those of you that have the other engineering blends, please forgive me. Electrical engineering, uh, didn't like that. Civil engineering, and then general engineering, I bailed. And I, did, I thought, you know, I got I to gotta graduate in something. So I changed it to business, and I was just tanking on all fronts. I was tanking. But Ralph kept talking to me. He kept sharing Christ with me. And, and what I kept understanding, and I thought, look, I'm good to go. I've been in church several times, so not just once, but many times. So I, I should be good to go. But God was getting a hold of me. And so one night he was sharing at a Young Life meeting, and he was talking about God, when you open your heart and your life to God, it's like opening your house, but you have to open all the doors to all the rooms. Because sometimes we leave closets closed because we're so ashamed of what he may find there. And his appeal was, you open all the doors because he wants to clean it all out. And I said this very small prayer just to me. And I said, God, I would love to know you, but I don't know how. I don't know how. None of my friends are, other than Ralph, was, were Christian. And I just walked away. And then uh, I had a friend of mine walk back to their room. Then I came back to my room. And the Holy Spirit was just grabbing a hold of me. And I said, okay, let me see if Ralph is still down there. So I went back down. And I, at this time, he was talking in the, the major dorm. There was a four-wing dormitory. And he was talking in one of the meeting rooms. And so I went down there. He wasn't there. I said, wow, hmm. Okay, so I decided to call. I went back to my room. Now, back then, we didn't have cell phones. You had, you had phones at the end of the hallway 
And so I called. I called his, his house. Actually, I called Susie. And she said, Ralph's not here yet. He might still be there. Okay. And so I thought, you know what? I don't know. I, I just feel so compelled. I'm going to put my coat on, and I'm going to go to his house. Because I figured he would have to left. So I put my coat on, press the elevator button. Door opens, and Ralph is standing there. I said, Ralph, I need to talk to you. And I don't know if you remember this. You said, Jet, God has a message for you. And I, this was blowing me away, all right? So we went into the TV room, which was a shocking event because usually it's filled and there was no one in there. And Ralph shared Jesus Christ with me for about an, at least an hour and a half. But what was interesting about this conversation, it was one way physically. So I was thinking questions Ralph would echo the questions and then answer. I wasn't saying anything. And I was, I was just, the Lord's presence was incredible. I gave my life to the Lord that night. And I just knew there had to be something different, and there was. And the Holy Spirit was overwhelming me. And in that context, when I became a Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I didn't know who to talk to. I, I didn't know what to do. I just knew something was different. I knew, and, over the, and this was February 1978. And so within that month, God had begun to change. And I, I told him, I don't know what's happening with my major. I know that I have to graduate. I, I don't know how. I had a dream. And in that dream, I was standing next, I was standing next to the football field. I'm looking at the field, and there are cinder blocks in this field. As I'm glancing at the cinder blocks, there's names, but the names of the cinder blocks are classes that I've taken. Then the blocks begin to shake, and they began to form a pyramid. As I'm looking up, there's a certain portion where the names change into classes I don't recognize. And at the very top, it said graduation. I'm looking at that, hmm, okay. Now remember, I, I'm just a guy, right? I, I, don't, I don't really know the Lord. And so this is all new to me, okay, I, really. So I went to my guidance counselor, and I said, you know, I need to change my major. I gave them what I thought was the right answer. He looked it over. He said, that'll work, but you're going to need to stay an additional year. I said, that's not a problem. I'll do that, which was God's plan. That was God's plan. So I was able to get a major that I could start pressing towards, which was psychology, okay, clinical psychology. That's a whole other issue clinical psychology. So I started moving forward, but yet I had this six-year commitment with the National Guard, okay? I was a combat engineer for the Army. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do with that? Well, remember, they had dropped ROTC at the University of Idaho, but Washington State University is only eight miles away, okay? It's in Pullman, Washington. So I thought, well, let me go over there, because I know they still have a unit there. So I go to that unit, and this was my junior year. I go to that unit, and I asked, do you have any slots, any ROTC slots available? They said, what school are you from? I said, University of Idaho. They said, you don't know about the new program? I said, no, what new program? They said, we just established a joint program between the University of Idaho and Washington State, and we're looking for U of I students. <laughs> uh, I'm in. I said, however, I said, I'm, I'm currently in the National Guard Army, 
And I don't know what to do about that. He says, not to worry. He says, we have some scholarships available. If you're willing to sign up for a scholarship, it will dissolve that obligation and you'll be able to come into the Air Force. And I went, where do I sign? Where do I sign? Now, now okay, so if you are not an understand how God works, you would think this is an uncanny set of circumstances. No. God was doing something I could not do. That's what's so amazing about this. I was buried so deep, I had to look up to see the ground. I couldn't figure this out. And he said, let me take this jet. Let me, let me show you what I have for you. And that's how he galvanized his grace in my life. That's how he brought to bear divinity into the carnal. Okay, that's how he did that. So that in those steps, I began to love Jesus Christ. And, and Ralph gave me a Bible. Now, I had been with LDS Mormons most of my life. Most of them, maybe some of you remember this, maybe some of you don't, but there was a class action lawsuit against the LDS church because blacks could not be priests in the Mormon church. And at the time, they had a president named Spencer Kimball. And when this was going to the Supreme Court back in 1975, uh, remember, the president of the Mormon church are living prophets according to the LDS. So he had a revelation. Blacks could be priests. Okay? As it was going through the cycle, blacks could be priests. And it avoided a major lawsuit against the church. But in that time, I had always been made very aware that I was less than average because God said I was less than average. But when he did this for me, he revealed I was anything but that. Anything but that. And so... When Ralph gave me the Bible, he gave me a Bible that I can't, I think it was the Living Way Bible back in the day. And, uh, and I read that from cover to cover. And I knew, I just decided, God, I was not going to move until you show me what truth is. I'm not going to go to any religious system. I'm not going to go to anything until you show me. And I read that Bible. And so it took me a couple years. And God also had to extricate me from the culture because I was very much involved in the football culture. And he began to take the scales from my eyes to let me see the, the caliber or non-caliber of the people that I was hanging with. And it was not positive. It, it wasn't positive. So he pulled me out of that. And I used to make excuses because people say, Jet, let's go to this party. Let's go to this bar. I used to make excuses so I could read my Bible. But I couldn't tell them I was reading my Bible. I felt they, they just wouldn't get it or they think I was just out there. No, I, so I did that. And so as I was coming up to my senior year to graduate, a lot of positive things happened that year. Um, so let me fast forward a little bit. So I went to, to Navigator School, uh, Mather Air Force Base, uh, was commissioned, um, and God opened my eyes for the first time in two years, I went to a church when I was in Sacramento, California. And I began to learn more about the word. I learned to defend the word. The word became everything to me. And so what I found is a wonderful pastime was debating Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormon missionaries coming to my door. <laughs> I, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But I want to tell you, the appeal of this divine word it will destroy most arguments. But that is not what God is interested in. He's interest, interested in, in bringing those that you talk to and share into the kingdom. 
All I was doing was knocking people down and saying, hey, protect yourself and walk away. But that's not, God challenged me. Because I couldn't figure out, why is my heart feeling weird? Because I should be feeling good. But, but these people that I was talking to, they weren't accepting my God. They were rejecting any God after we debated. They, they were not accepting any God. And that's not what God wanted. So I went to the, this church the very first time in over two and a half years. I went into a church. I was invited by these gals. I was washing my car. They came by and they talked about this church. It was the inter, Interdenominational Church of God on Larchmont Avenue in Sacramento, California. I'm amazed I remember that. Talked to me about it. They said, please come. So I went. And I thought, if you say one thing outside of this word, I'm physically walking out right then. So they come in. People are friendly. They're, they're greeting me. And I sit down. They start their praise and worship. And I start boo-hooing. I'm going, what's the deal? I... I, my heart was breaking, and that had never happened before, never. And I'm thinking, okay, what's happening here, okay? And they began to preach the word of God, and it continued to flow. So I'm, I'm trying to hold it together, the whole service. And I'm walking out, I get to my car, and I'm crying on the way home. I'm thinking, oh, God, what's the deal? What's happening here? And it was the, the filling of the Holy Spirit that was taking place in my life. And so from that day forward, I invested in a boatload of hankies. And I have them in all my pockets, even today. Because you can never tell when the Holy Spirit's going to touch you and it just starts flowing. So I have hankies. But I was baptized in the, in the American River in Sacramento, California. And that's before I went to my first duty station. So from that time, God has allowed me to become more of an investor and a recipient of what he has for us. And one of the things that continually melts my heart, I just want to read just a passage here. It's in John chapter 15, and it, it melts my heart all the time. And, and there's a lot, because he talks about us being the vine and abiding in him. But this is what I read in, in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, I'll give it to you. Okay. That has melted me so many times because I keep thinking, God, do you not understand who I am? And he reminds me, Jay, I, I chose you. I chose you. I get the fact you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I know what you're about. I know your weaknesses. And more than that, I know your failures. And I chose you. Okay? I chose you. And he began to show me what covenantal re relationships mean. He began to establish the fact that I am an ambassador to the kingdom. I am an ambassador. And so all the different things you see about Jet Taylor or any of you, the fact that I happen to be black, five foot six, I happen to be in the Air Force, I was an athlete. I, I've been involved in ministries, all these different things. I'm a husband. I'm a father. They're all the trappings of being an ambassador, okay? An ambassador for Jesus Christ. And I want to be a little bit candid here. If I'm an ambassador, who 
do I represent? I represent the kingdom that I'm from. That's who I represent. No one cares about my individual opinion. They care about the kingdom's opinion. Okay, so, so and I've traveled all over the globe and I've had to work with diplomats. One of the worst things a diplomat will tell you that happens is someone going native. Okay, what does that mean? That means you go to a certain country to represent the United States and all of a sudden you begin to adopt the standards of the country that you're in instead of representing the land that you're from. And you get pulled immediately. Okay? It's, it's, it's grounds for termination. And I want you to think about that. When God calls us to be ambassadors, now, his grace and his mercy prevents us from experiencing termination, but he talks to us. He lets us know. And why do I say that? My heart right now for the church is that we are trying to put culture to answer the questions that only can be answered spiritually. The culture is not the answer. It is not. I've, as, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I came in the military when Ronald Reagan was the president. Ronald Reagan was a strong Christian. I was allowed to practice my Christian faith as an officer in the United States Air Force. Matter of fact, that was affirmed. I had a three-star general sharing with me the things that he was doing in, the, in, the, in regards to sharing Christ with Russians, with Russian diplomats, okay? I was on the joint staff. I overlapped Colin Powell by three months and then General Charlie Koshvili. But in the joint staff, you deal with all the other areas of government. If anyone has been involved in Washington, D.C., they're clearly is an attitude inside the 495 Beltway because so much information is flowing that most people never have access to. And you feel like, hey, I, I, I know what's going on. I know what's really happening. I, I, I did, though. So it, it was interesting because I worked with the White House Situation Room, the National Military Command Center. Everything that was going on in the government that had any military implication at all, I was aware of. Okay? My background was intelligence, and we did a lot of things. So I say that simply to say, there is a, a temptation to believe, you can fix this. You can fix this. And I'm here to tell you that's not accurate at all. It has to do with us being citizens of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a body of believers, God gives us the tools, the strength, and the spirit to do that. So what he's affirmed to me is simply this, is I've grown in my walk. God has shown me a lot of things. And one of the things he continues to show me is my faith makes a difference and the influence that you have makes a difference in people's lives. It does. And so when I, when my father, both my parents are gone. They both passed away. My father was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ until two weeks before he died. Right? One of the reasons why he wasn't, and I'm not here to offend, he was an active member of Freemasonry. He was a very, very high office holder in Freemasonry. Freemasonry gives you the impression that you can actually go to the celestial lodge above heaven by doing their practices and has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. So he, I talked to him, he goes, I'm good to go, son. I'm good to go. He was dying of cancer. And I began to appeal to the Lord. I appealed to the Lord. And he received Jesus Christ before he died. 
Now, this is where God answers our prayers. So I asked God, I said, God, did he ever know or feel the fruit of his conversion in two weeks? So he passed away. We had a formal military uh, funeral for him, uh, 721-gun salute. And then we had a place where we ate afterwards. And his hospice care worker came to me. She said, I just want to tell you a story. I said, okay. She said, I went in to, to help your dad get comfortable. And uh, I was massaging his legs. And uh, I was concerned. And he looked at me and said, what's your concern? She said, well, my nephew took a spill on the bike. And he hit his head on the curb and was unconscious. And there was swelling on the brain. And they didn't know what was going to happen. She said, and your dad said, well, let's pray. And I said, wait. What? She said, your dad said, let's pray. And I had her explain that three times. My dad has never said those words to me, ever. He has never said pray. He has never alluded to God in that way. I said, are you sure? She said, oh, absolutely. And she said, he prayed such a sweet but powerful prayer. I was just floored. So then she goes on to say, you know, so he prayed. And I said, okay. And then... She finished. She went home. She said, and after a little bit, she called her sister, who wanted to know how her nephew was doing. And she said he came out of the coma, and he was going to recover, according to the doctors. And she happened to ask, when did this, st- when did this happen? And they said about an hour, about almost an hour and a half ago. And she looked at me, and she says, you know, that's about the time your dad prayed. Wasn't that a coincidence? <laughs> I mean, no, this is the thing. I had asked God, was there any evidence of my dad's conversion? Jet Taylor asked that. I didn't need to know. I didn't expect him to answer. But he brought that to me. But why would he bring it to me? He brought it to me to reaffirm that his love for me is personal. Very personal and that's what I want to share it's very personal and when Jesus Christ and we allow him to to be loved by him it's not just personal it affects your family and the trajectory of your family what Ralph didn't know is I was going down a path that was very very different from the one I'm on today very very different And because Jesus Christ intercepted me when I was going down a path that was clearly, clearly death-ridden, God gave me a chance that I, a chance I never knew existed. He gave me a future that I never imagined. The marriage that I have to Linda, the four children that I have, I never, ever thought that was possible to enjoy or to have the joy or the fulfillment that was available or possible, it never entered my mind. It never did. And I will tell you, Linda, that first year of marriage, when we were, and I'm going to go back a little bit, that first year of marriage, you know, he put us together because my brother was murdered. He was murdered here in Boise, Idaho. And it was over drug, drug issues, okay? And so Ralph had shared with me a little bit to console me. And it was extremely helpful. It was. So I got married, but I, I say, let me just back up. From that point on, 
Linda and I began a relationship because she gave her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we got married. And in that marriage relationship, which I didn't know a lot about, what she did is she demonstrated Jesus Christ to me. Remember I told you that I was a football player. Uh, I can't say this often enough, but I was also a jerk. Uh, I was a meatball. I was insensitive. Oh, gosh, I was calm. Anyway, all those things. So I didn't understand how much of that still had to go when I got married. And it had to go. So when I married Linda, I told her, you know what? I want just pure Linda. I want you to be in the best shape of your life. And, and she can tell you this. We were going for a walk one time. There was a reservoir behind her house. And she I said, let's go for a walk, honey. And she thought, gosh, it's going to be a romantic walk. Right up until the time I said, get your knees up, stretch out your pace. Okay. We really want to stretch this out. She's going, wait, wait, what? And, and I was trying to get her into shape. Okay. She loved me. And she was trying to do everything I asked her to do. Getting up in the morning, going to the gym. Now, gentlemen, I'm going to tell you, this is where I kind of dip my, my hand in some radioactive stuff. I said, and you can't have any ice cream in this house. You, you're going to learn to drink water. And I governed what she ate. Okay? My daughters have told me, Dad, I would have divorced you. <laughs> okay. Guilty as charged. But she tried to make it work. And this is what I found. As she was trying to make it work, it was having a negative effect on her health and on her, on her attitude and her outlook. And all of a sudden, God allowed me to see the impact that I have on my family. And he used that. And I said, God, I'm, I'm coming to you. I don't want this to happen anymore. And I realized that I had a profound phobia. And, go ahead. I think I, I think I have 15 minutes. Yes. I'll let you talk at that point. Well, I just wanted to interject a little bit and just say that um, God's grace, yes, because we are all on a journey of becoming more Christ-like. And when he gets us, as Jet said, the wonderful thing is, is that God knows what he's getting. He knows um, our faults. He knows our stumbling blocks. He knows our issues. He knows our baggage. He knows our history. But the one thing that I've found is that he is faithful and trustworthy and that when we come to him, he's continuing to clean house, as um, Ralph shared with Judd about cleaning house when, when God, you invite him into the home of your body. And the thing is, is that when you get married, then God takes the two become one. And then there begins another joining together and a kind of cleaning house and rebuilding and developing. All of that said, I'm so grateful for um, the relationship that Jet and I have with Jesus Christ. Um, our relationship with one another would not have been had not it been for God. Um, perhaps another time, I'm sure we'll be back to Idaho sometime, and then I can share with you how it even uh, came about. But it was an amazing thing. And essentially, Jet discipled me long distance. It was back in the days where you wrote letters, and yes, you had rotary dial phones. And um, our conversations began to be about what we were learning and reading in the Bible. And so um, God has continued to develop that relationship. So we are now 35 years married, four children, uh, four, four five, grand, five, five. Grandchildren, five grandchildren, and um, 
I think the thing that we continue to uh, be in awe about is that God is more than able. You know, you can read all the books on parenting, you can read all the how-tos, you can read all the books on marriage, and yes, we should be learners of life, but in the end, we do our best in Jesus Christ, and he carries us and fills gaps, and I'm so grateful for that. When our children were little, Jet spoke about the race um, a little bit, and Jet's older sister grew up in the days of, you know, black power, and when we got married and we had our first child, she sent us a book, and it was a children's book, and it's Daddy's Black, Mommy's White, What Am I? And I looked at it, and it was a children's book, and I said to Jet, I will read this to our children out of respect to Rita because she gave it to us as a gift, but then I'll donate it to a library because we're raising our children to be Christian. We're not raising them to be black or white. It is not our ethnicity. It is our heart and our belief system. So, um, and then it was wonderful because Anna, who, like I said, is a junior in college, this summer she was telling us how she's involved with Campus Crusade, and they had a panel discussion on race and Christianity. And she said, I didn't quite understand it all because, I mean, it's Campus Crusade, we're all Christian. And she said afterwards, somebody asked her, well, how were you raised? Because your parents, your dad's black, your mother's Asian. She said, I was never raised according to race. I was always raised in a Christian home with Christian values. And so again, as Jet was saying, the culture can affect us if we don't stay grounded in the word. It's the word that keeps bringing us back to truth. And truth is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Truth is our heart for God. Truth is that we are continually washing our mind with the word so that it doesn't get contaminated with all of the world's views. And that's a daily ongoing process. It's what we do to keep ourselves aligned and in tuned with God. Amen. Amen. So just to add, pardon me. How much time do I have? Because I can wrap up right now. Here's my prayer. That you leave some on the table because we want to fly you back for a men and women's meeting someday. How many would vote for yay for that? Yeah, so do you have a scripture to close with? And I'm okay with you not because we want a reason. I just want to close with this. I do. I just want to close with this. And that is one of the things that I've come to realize is that if I'm going to stand for Jesus Christ, I am going to take hits. I'm going to. You are going to. So as a conservative black man in Washington, D.C., I took hits. Okay? I did. Okay? But not because of political views, but because of the king that I serve. I am an ambassador, and in that role, in my ambassadorial role, I make no apologies. I don't. I love the Lord, and he has deeply and profoundly shown me incredible grace, mercy, restoration, and redemption. He has. He has. So we just need to be aware of that. Peter said something to, to Jesus, and in his response, he said, You know, Lord, I have a brother. And he sinned against me, and should I forgive him seven times? Now, what's interesting about that phrase, he said a brother. So you can talk about, is he a brother culturally, family, faith? And the answer is yes to all of them. The key here is that he's family, okay? 
And how many times should I forgive him? What did Jesus Christ say? Seventy times seven. In other words, the hurts that we feel deepest, it isn't from the world, it's from the body. So we need to understand that even though we may not intentionally do that, we have to forgive each other. It has to come for us. Because if we don't get it right, the world will never get it right. We have to get it right. And it starts with us recognizing that we have to forgive each other. We have to encourage each other to be all that we can be in Jesus Christ. And that's the fact. So that means you're going to take some salvos. You're going to have to learn to take some hits, forgive, and move forward. And guess what? The Holy Spirit is an incredible buffer. Okay. So I'm going to end with that. Yes. Sure. I, I, let me pray. Would you please stand? First of all, Father, I just thank you for this opportunity that Linda and I have had. That Linda and I have had just to share before you. There is so much I just want to express because of you. But I ask now, Lord, that your anointed would just fill this entire sanctuary. That every person within the sound of my voice would just be filled but renewed with zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. To understand, Father, there's no bondage, there's no addiction, there's nothing that can stand in the presence of the living God. And I ask that, Father, your light would shine brightly in every one of our lives and just a complete release of the Holy Spirit, that we would be wonderful reflections of Jesus Christ in every area, in every venue, and every place that we go. Thank you again, Father, for this time together, and we ask that your presence be felt. In Jesus Christ's name we ask, and everyone said, Amen. Thank you. Oh, and by the way,